welcome to Our American Experiment, a podcast that engages leading thinkers and doers, creatively working to strengthen the United States of America, the longest running experiment to defend individual liberty and promote human flourishing the world has ever seen. This is Our American Experiment. Hello and welcome to Our American Experiment. I'm Jessica Dahl here in Washington, D.C., and I'm joined by my co-host, Evan Baer, in Austin, Texas. Hello, Evan. Hi, Jessica. So, Evan, you recently had the opportunity to sit down and talk criminal justice reform with Doug Deason. Doug Deason's the president of Deason Capital Services. He manages various hedge and private equity funds out of Dallas, Texas. But can you give our listeners just a a quick summary of of who Doug is? Yeah, well, in certain ways, Doug might be kind of the standard Dallas money guy. Uh, He's got great blazers and takes nice vacations and has a wall in his office with photos of cool places he's been. But Doug has a very unique story for a person of that profile. He has a very specific moment in high school uh, where he was raised in Arkansas where he actually got arrested. And strangely, that became the beginning of his journey to become this unlikely fierce advocate for criminal justice reform, which honestly, getting into this whole thing, criminal justice reform, it sounds like this sort of narrow legal question. It turns out it's a much bigger, more complex issue uh, than I thought. Yes. So let's let's talk a little bit more about about criminal justice reform. Unfortunately, the facts are, are really clear. The United States really imprisons a lot of people. Um, if you think about it, uh, we represent 5% of the world's population, but we have 25% of the world's incarcerated people. That's a huge number. What's going on here? Well, I did some digging and I'll give a quick history lesson on this. So in the United States, we see a pretty significant increase in crime in the 1960s. There were front page articles about uh, it's unsafe for your children to play on the streets. The initial liberal response was to say, well, let's rehabilitate people and not put them in prison so that they never commit crimes in the first place. That didn't really work. The conservative response was to be, quote, tough on crime. That manifested in mandatory minimum sentencing, which said to the judge, you don't have discretion about how you sentence people. It said this kind of crime always has this kind of sentence. We saw massive increase in the number of violations that were considered uh, federal felonies. And along this period, we see a huge expansion, explosion really, in the number of Americans going into prison, especially on the nonviolent front. Uh, This peaks with about 1 million nonviolent offenders in prison, uh, such that all the way today, it's the case that nearly one out of every 100 American adults is currently in prison or in jail. And then when you add in people on probation or parole, it's actually one in 33 adult Americans is under some type of control by the criminal justice system. So it has really exploded. I do want to take it to this particular moment I found really interesting and I want to share it with our listeners. Now you guys may have seen this in a high school political science class, but in 1988, George Bush Sr. is running against Michael Dukakis for the United States presidency. And there's a political ad that became maybe the most famous political ad of all times. And it's called the Revolving Door Ad. Let's listen to a quick clip now. As Governor Michael Dukakis vetoed mandatory sentences for drug dealers, he vetoed the death penalty. His revolving door prison policy gave weekend furloughs to first-degree murderers not eligible for parole. While out, 
Many committed other crimes like kidnapping and rape, and many are still at large. Now Michael Dukakis says he wants to do for America what he's done for Massachusetts. America can't afford that risk. So the visuals in this ad show prisoners walking into prison, literally going through a revolving door and coming back out. So here we have the presidential Republican candidate basically saying we've got to be really tough on crime. Now, interestingly, only four years later, we have Bill Clinton, then governor of Arkansas, who during his presidential campaign returns to the state of Arkansas to oversee an execution. So we see it both on the right and on the left in the late 80s and 90s. We got to be tough on crime. So, wow. I mean, this is this is a really intense ad and, and really represents probably the the highest point of the tough on crime sort of narrative. But things have definitely changed over even over the last several years. This narrative has softened and sort of acceptance of, of this criminal justice reform movement has 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 opened up. Um, where so where where are we now and what sort of coalitions um, in, based on your research have have you seen that have been really popping up over the last several years? Yeah, well, we've seen a lot of encouraging alliances getting built really around the human cost of mass incarceration. Uh, the fact that we have 40% of low-income men who father a child out of wedlock have already been in jail or prison by the time their child is born. So this is a question of uh, economic justice. It's a question of uh, economics. It's very expensive to put people in prison. So whether you care about it because you want to care for poor people or you care about it because you want the government to be efficient, people are coming to the table from the far left and from the far right. Enter stage left, someone like Doug Deason, who in many ways is a pretty standard uh, right-wing Republican business guy, has this personal story and through his own process of getting educated becomes really one of the poster children to be a great advocate and bridge builder on this topic. Yeah, I mean, that's why that's why Doug is such an interesting figure on this particular issue. You know, he is, um, you know, one of the very first sort of big money donors that that major candidates, you know, including Trump and, and some of the other presidential hopefuls in this last cycle, um, one of the first stops that they make when coming to Texas. And you know, he's, as you mentioned, heavily involved sort of in the Republican Party in Texas, but he calls himself an independent. Um, he, in fact, he's supported many Democrats. And so his sort of ethos is that he wants to support uh, the candidates and the policies that will get things done in this country. It's less about labels and strict ideology for him. And I think his leadership on criminal justice reform uh, does seem a bit representative of of this, given that um, it happens to be one of the few remaining issues in these hyper-partisan times um, that really does cross sort of both the left and the right. Um, so can you give our listeners just a just a really quick intro on what sparked his interest in the in the issue well we'll get the whole story in a bit but the summary is it was a late night in high school for doug in arkansas at a high school party where there was some beer and no parents and the police show up that was the beginning of his journey all right well without further ado let's get to your interview with doug uh, i'm uh, i'm doug decent and i am president of decent capital services uh, tell me this, uh, Doug, do you like doing interviews? Yeah, I don't mind. I don't mind doing interviews. Any memorable ones from the past? Uh, great ones, terrible ones? Uh, oh, I've, d- I've done Cavuto a couple of times recently. Uh, more about our political activism. Yep. And uh, the, uh, you know, my condemnation, I guess, of 
the House at the time, although I think they've come around and done a good job in advancing the President's agenda. But uh, the, the, um, the Senate, you know, we're still very frustrated with the Senate. And so, you know, Cavuto, had, uh, I'd been, uh, I always do the interviews, the press interviews at the uh, Koch seminars twice a year. And so, uh, in last June, late June of 2017, I um, made the statement and, and that we were uh, uh, cutting off, we're closing the piggy bank, the Dallas piggy bank. And, you know, Dallas truly is the, the uh, uh, you know, the largest source of funds for the Republican Party at this point. I mean, we are the piggy bank to the Republican Party. Every major candidate across the country comes through Dallas, and a lot of them multiple times. And so, uh, you know, we've just uh, gathered a group, kind of built a coalition of large donors, and uh, we cut them off. And I think it got a lot of attention in the House and the Senate, and not that we're solely responsible, not at all, but, you know, it was one little thing that helped push the, the House along. Uh, the Senate, on the other hand, still apparently hasn't gotten the message. We'll see. Well, uh, we'll, we'll get to more on that later for sure. So uh, tell the listeners, where are we right now? What are we looking at? Yes, yeah, so we're sitting in my office. Uh, we're in Preston Center, which is in the heart of Dallas. And we're looking north, I mean, I'm sorry, we're looking south uh, towards downtown across the Park Cities area. So got a beautiful green residential area all the way to uh, uh, Oaklawn and Uptown. And then on the other side of Uptown is downtown. So it's a great view. You know, in my office, we've got uh, you know, different framed uh, a little bit pictures. Of a, a little bit of a trophy wall. What's yeah. uh, There's a lot of things to describe. What's a favorite a photo or a framed item that it's important to you for a certain reason? Well, I, you know, probably one of them would be, uh, uh, you know, Mike Pence and I have been friends for several years, and up on the right is a picture of, of uh, Mike when he was governor, Governor Pence, and uh, Congressman Pete Sessions, who I'm really, really good friends with, had been with him the last two evenings, and uh, uh, Dad, Darwin Deason, and me, in our suite at Cowboys Stadium. And uh, I don't think that was an Indianapolis game, but uh, Mike had come down, and you know, we've held fundraisers for him over the years, and he's come down to football games on several occasions. And it was just it was a lot of fun, and uh, you know, I just really value the relationship with Mike. As I look over at your desk, I do see uh, CNBC is on, I guess Fox Business, rather, yeah, right. is on. Um, you're you're a, a market guy. I mean, most of your day is spent uh, thinking about investments in companies. Is that fair to say? You know, it's probably 50-50. We think about, we watch the market, we watch the stocks that, we, that we're heavily invested in. Um, you know, we're, we're, we don't try to beat the market. Uh, so... You know, we don't hire fund man. We don't hire managers. We don't uh, invest usually in individual stocks. We're more into private equity and uh, private companies. It's been worked out really well. We are in quite a few funds. Um, you know, we do have our own hedge fund, uh, which is based in Connecticut. But uh, you know, one, one of our guys is here, and one of them is in uh, uh, in Connecticut. They they do a great job just investing in different companies, kind of in and out beat the market every year we've had it substantially um and then, and then i watch politics you know we're very politically active and so i watch what's going on in politics so for someone who's built companies and had a great career as an investor 
I mean, the easy thing for you to do is to just keep making money and keep making great companies. Why even bother with these kind of the, the dirty, frustrating components of politics? Well, I always say, people always say to me, wow, you must really love politics because you're, you're so actively involved and engaged. And I am, and I spend, you know, an inordinate amount of time, effort, and money on politics. Um, and I'm, I, I'm, I hate politics. I'm not, I don't, it's not something I'm passionate about. It's not something I enjoy. I do cherish some of the relationships I've made along the way. But it's, it's a means to an end. And, you know, we we're very, feel very strongly about, one, the fact that, that uh, federalism is what this country is based upon. And, you know, most of the powers, uh, other than a few distinct powers enumerated in the Constitution, most powers belong at the state level. And, you know, it's, we're the United States of America. We're not the United State of America. We're not the United Cities of America. We're the United States, and so power belongs at the state. So we, we feel very strongly about that, and we uh, always, you know, make clear to politicians at every level that that's how we feel and that that's what we're going to support. Uh, more importantly, is through legislation is is uh, the best way to make changes uh, in our uh, criminal justice system at the federal level and at the state level. I think we've been very effective at the state level, especially in Texas. Uh, and Texas had a great start. I'm not trying to take credit for what we've accomplished in Texas collectively, but we've done our little part to add to it over the last few years and have helped pass, come up with, and helped pass several great laws. And then we've taken those out to other s states through uh, the Right on Crime initiative, which is part of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. and. Uh, you, let, let me ask you about this. You said you, you hate politics. I mean, for a lot of people, uh, it's pomp and circumstance, it's power, it's events. Um, there's some people out there that, that love it. Why do you hate it so much? Well, I just hate how disingenuous it is. I mean, it's, you know, when I go to Austin, I always enjoy getting, no offense, I know you live there, so don't take this offensively. It's a great place. It's really neat, but the political side of it, is really frustrating. And so when I'm there, I spend most of my time, you know, at the Capitol or nearby. And uh, just the dis, and there are a lot of great people there, but it just gets old because you look, you go in, you sit down, you've got an appointment, you meet with a, a politician, they look you in the eye and they tell you, you know, here's what I'm going to do or here's what I think I'm going to do. Mm. And then they don't do it. And, you know, that doesn't happen all the time, but it happens enough that. They'll sit there and look you in the eye, and you know damn good and well they're lying to you. Any uh, particular stories come to mind of, of, of big disappointments or watching people say one thing to you and do something else? Y you know, no, it's just happened so many times, and, and I, I try to put the uh, those types of memories out of my brain as quickly as possible because uh, it's you know, it's going to build resentment if I don't. <laughs> but the same thing happens in D.C., so I go to D.C., and... Yeah, it's just it's nauseating after two or three days because you know one the traffic's so bad because there's so many. You know, I was hoping Trump could roll in and just you know cut the uh, uh, employment there by thirty or forty percent yeah. day yeah. one. It's not quite that easy when you know, for example, you're Scott Pruitt, head of the EPA, and you have a uh, fifteen thousand employees represented by seven different unions. 
it's kind of hard mm. to uh, to cut, make those cuts. Mm. And so, you know, you can just get on the streets of D.C. and see that you know, we spend way too much money on employing people and not getting things done. Mm. So along the way, uh, we're going to talk about criminal justice, uh, clearly a flagship issue for you. Uh, what were early memories or experiences you had about uh, learning about politics or getting interested in, in questions of political philosophy or public policy? When I was a, uh, a senior in college, it was 1984, and uh, President Reagan was running for re-election, and Bill Clinton had been Attorney General of Arkansas, was running for governor. And my uh, stepfather at the time was from a I guess he was my ex-stepfather ex by that time, but he, he had introduced us to, to Bill Clinton, uh, you know, a couple times. My mom had met him, obviously, more than I have, but uh, he, when he came through, he'd come to football games, that kind of thing, and, and uh, I saw he was a really neat guy, really interesting guy, and frankly, conservative, and he was conservative. You remember a charming, affable... Mm -hmm. Shake your hand. Yeah. Yeah. And just, and, and, you know, looking at him and comparing him to Reagan, I was a huge Reagan fan, but I thought that, that felt like Clinton was conservative. And I think by anybody's standards today, he would be considered, you know, pretty far right mm. at that time. Sure. And so I actually supported and voted for Reagan for president and Clinton for governor. And I had Clinton uh, Reagan signs in my. Huh car and in my yard and everybody's like you know what what are you what do you and <laughs> sure. I'd say I'm independent and, and I'm really not I know it appears to to people from the outside that I'm, I'm a highly partisan person but I'm really not I've voted for Democrats you know we we've supported I've supported Democrats every year I support Democrats and um, you know, I don't care how things get done yeah. I don't care who does them I just want to get things done yeah and I think in a lot of ways Democrats and Republicans have a lot of the same goals. They just have different ways of getting there. Mm. And, and I'm not trying to say that the, the ends justifies the means, but all I'm saying is, is that there are different ways to get to the same goal. And I, don't, I, don't, I think that we could, Colonel Justice Ford is a perfect example of, of a uh, you know, subject that both sides are, are passionate about mm. and work well together on. Yeah. Well, let's turn to criminal justice. I know that you've got a, a widely read story uh and you've probably told it a, a thousand times but I'd, I'd love the the rendition of the night it all began okay we'll make a very long story short i was uh i grew up in northwest arkansas my family has had been the, has been there since 1840 so we were literally homesteaded there uh founded the city of pea ridge arkansas and I grew up in Rogers, and it's, which is right next door to Bentonville, where Walmart is based. So we have Walmart, Tyson's Chicken, J.B. Hunt Trucking, University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. Um, Daisy BB was kind of the first big industry up there, you know, so uh, make Red Rider sure. BB guns yeah. and, uh, and, and BBs, you know. Yeah. I, what comes to mind is uh, uh, you'll shoot your eye out from right. Christmas story. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And so that... That gun was made in Rogers, Arkansas. Okay. And um, it was a great place to grow up, a lot of fun. My parents were divorced. Dad had moved to Dallas. And uh, so I got to come to Dallas multiple times every year, and he would come up and see us. And, 
you know, so it was, it was a really great way to grow up because I got to grow up with my parent, my grandparents on one of uh, dad's parents had a farm, the original decent homestead from 1862. Hmm. And uh, so we got to go out and, you know, hang out on the farm and, and you know, shovel chicken shit and help bale hay and, you know, plant vegetables, sure. pick vegetables and all the fun things that you do on a farm. Um, but anyhow, when I was 17, a junior, uh, one of my friends, dad was his dad was a uh, an executive at Walmart he got transferred it was a quick transfer so Walmart just bought his house fully furnished liquor cabinet stocked so the buddy gave me a key and another kid a key said you guys can stop in make a drink but don't have a party the neighbors are watching there's a big house on the edge of town between Rogers and Bentonville so it worked for several weeks and we'd go over mix a couple of drinks and then go on about our merry way you know, one weekend it had gone viral without social media. <laughs> and uh, the, um, you know, a lot of kids started showing up. And before I know it, it's, it's a party. And so I'm trying to get people to leave and turn the lights off and get your cars out of the driveway. Yeah. And it was, and, and it's like, it like 15 people, 50 people. Oh, I'll, I'll bet there were, yeah, there were 20 or 30 okay. probably. It's, now, you know, this is a long time ago, but that's the way I remember it. Yeah. And uh, so the, the gals day at the time, we ran out and, Jumped in the car and we're backing out. And here come three different jurisdictions of police. Lights flashing. It's Rogers Police, Bentonville Police, and the Benton County Police. And uh, so they come out, guns drawn, pull us out of the car, frisk us, spin, spin me around, ask me what's going on. And so I explained it to them. So they kind of lightened up. We go up, up to the house and they go room to room and pull all the kids out of the rooms and get us all in the living room. And, and uh, you know, I said, okay, we're going to take everyone to, to jail for burglary or we'll just take the instigators so you know i raise my hand the other kid raises his hand they handcuff us throw us in the back of the car take us to bentonville jail and and uh, the city of bentonville and uh, charge us with burglary which is a felony so i'm 17 years old junior in high school i have no idea what that means or what the implications mm -hmm. are of having a felony i've uh i've been arrested before for minor possession and i was arrested after minor possession things like that so I was you know like to have fun a bit of a hellraiser I guess in in high school and college but um, it, it, that was a, a critical moment in my life that could have gone very poorly mm. and we were lucky my mom uh, came to get me out of jail again not the first time what was uh, what was that phone call like it wasn't bad it, it's it's you know dad was arrested a few times when he was a kid growing up in the same town. We had uh, uh, a lot of the same teachers. I had, you know, a lot of the same teachers and, that he had. and uh, So he was fine with it, although he didn't like the felony part. And mom was just in a panic, not because I'd been arrested, but because I had a felony. And so she tried to explain what that meant. And uh, so on Monday, she called uh, the city attorney, Asa Hutchinson, and who's now the governor of Arkansas, and said, I'm... Um, you know, Doug got arrested, explained the situation. He said, you know, don't worry about it, Bonnie. We're going to, uh, we'll take care of it. We'll, you know, we'll, uh, if he'll plead guilty to a lesser uh, charge of criminal justice, I'm sorry, uh, uh, criminal trespassing, um, you know, then we, we can get the felony removed. So that's what we did. I pled guilty to a criminal trespass. I got, had to pay a $150 fine, which was a lot of money for me at the time, and had six months probation. And so I had to, and went over the summer between my junior and senior year, so I had to completely keep my nose clean for six months. And I did, 
And so six months later, uh, you know, my record was expunged. And there, frankly, there wasn't even expungement laws in, sure. in Arkansas at the time. But, you know, Asa just had it expunged. And so it worked out great for me. So we were by no means wealthy. But I was blessed to be, uh, uh, you know, well-connected because mm -hmm. of our family, you know, that we just, we'd been there for so long. We right. had relatives everywhere and everybody knew everybody. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, really the gravity of the situation finally hit me on what it would mean to me if I got a felony. Mm. So after that, I applied to University of Arkansas, SMU, <coughs> IBM, Christopher Wakefield, you know, for uh, home mortgages, cell phone contract, anything that where you go in and you have to there's a box there. Mm. You either check it or you don't. And, and it, you know, the language is different depending on the company, but, you know, it generally says, have you ever been convicted of a felony or have you ever been convicted of a crime? Mm. Or of, and and uh, I've never had to check that box. Mm. And it always, I've never failed to not stop and think about that day, mm. that event in my life and how lucky I am and how unfortunate a lot of a big part of society is mm. they don't have those connections or the money or the ability to have that the, the charges reduced mm. and it's you know how many people have made the same mistakes mm. a similar mistake and yet they're punished for it the rest of their lives how do you think about the when that when you see that box and your pen goes past it and you don't check that what does checking that box mean for people that do have to check the box? You know, it affects their ability. Whatever they're applying for, they're not going to get it. If they're applying for a loan, if they're applying for a job, for school, trying to get into a college, hmm. more than likely they're not going to get it. Now, now, you know, more and more companies, more and more colleges are, you know, taking a second look at that hmm. and, and hiring uh you know, convicted felons, mm. but it's there's you're certainly going to get a lot more scrutiny. Mm. They're going to do the criminal background check. They're going to find out exactly what you've been charged with. They're going to question you about it. If you're applying for a cell phone, you're probably not going to get a cell phone. If you're applying for an apartment, uh, you're not going to be able to rent an apartment more than likely. How does AT&T end up saying that you have been convicted of a felony means we're not going to let you pay us $150 a month for your cell phone? Yeah, I have no idea, and I'm not saying AT&T might hear this and say that, well, no, we don't look at that anymore. But at one yeah. time they did, when they yeah. were Southwestern Bell, there was no question hmm. that they did. Hmm. And, um, you know, there, obviously there are other options besides you can go to the, the prepaid contracts and that kind of thing. But that's probably what, even today, I think they might, sure. depending on the, the severity of the crime and what they find when they do the background check. Yeah. All right, so you have this... Uh you get lucky because of uh, just your family situation. This ability to not check the box kind of is sticking with you. Um, this event, how long ago was this? So that was 1979. Okay. So it stuck with you for a while, but something did something happen later that kind of pulled you into this fight more publicly? Well, so, so I've always been politically active. And, you know, it's, it's been, I've always recognized the fact that, that how important the legislative process is and how, you know, if you want to get things done, the best way to do it is by influencing politicians. And so we've, we've, you know, been very selective in how we contribute, but we've contributed 
you know, for many, many years at the state and federal level. Mm. And, you know, it, the more and more dad and I've worked together, and especially when I took over the family office in 2009, um, we really started getting involved in politics and started supporting the candidates that we felt, you know, matched up with, mm. with our belief system. And uh, when we came out of the 2014 election cycle, uh, you know, I'd been to the Coke seminar uh, multiple times. I think I started going in either 2011 or 2012. And the very first time I went, Charles Koch was speaking at the, uh, in the plenary session, which is the big open session. With, with, so there were maybe 150 people in the room, maybe 200. It's, a lot, it's you know, doubled in size or more now um, I'm sitting there and he started he got up and he started talking specifically about criminal justice mm -hmm. reform and you know I almost felt like that somebody had sent him my f a file on me and he mm -hmm. was speaking directly to me mm -hmm. and he wasn't but he was talking about exactly what I'm talking about now and it really touched me and really uh, he talked about how we we can help p other mm -hmm. people we can get involved mm -hmm. we can help change the system hmm. because the, the way the system's set up now it's it's you know someone gets convicted of a felony and they have a big f stamped on their forehead for the rest of their lives so we uh uh that that, that was a big influence i mean charles coke has been a big influence on me from from that standpoint and i've seen what a citizen can do especially when teamed up with other citizens hmm. and it just really made me you know more ambitious than ever to try and get something done. So after Charles's uh, talk that day, did you did you go up and find him and talk to him? What was your realization there? I, I don't think I did that time. I think uh, you know, I mean, I, I feel like I'm you know pr pretty good friends with him, and and have certainly uh, you know, spent a lot of time with him at, a, at at seminars over the last few years, and we've had a lot of conversations about that about you know, about uh, different politicians and uh, who we should support and not support. And, and um, uh, so I think, you know, I get e emails or letters from them fairly regularly mm. when we make a, you know, accomplish a goal because mm. obviously they're involved with it. A lot of times we team up with uh, uh, the Charles Koch Institute. You know, we have the, the Decent Family Center for Criminal Justice Reform at uh, SMU and the Demon Law School, and that was funded uh, half by us, 50% by us, 50% by the Charles Koch Foundation. Hmm. So we teamed up on that together. Um, you know, he's really, really big on criminal justice reform and giving yeah. people second chances. And um, we came out of the 2014 election cycle having uh, supported all of the statewide winners. You know, hmm. Been close with uh, Attorney General Greg Abbott, now Governor Abbott, Dan Patrick, I was his, uh, he's our lieutenant governor. I was his uh, co-chair for North Texas during the primary and the general. And just, you know, on down the line, all of the statewides we had supported. And so I just looked at it at that time and I said, I thought about what's the most effective thing I could do. And so I contacted the uh, uh, director of uh, Americans for Prosperity in Texas, Mike Hassan at the time. And said, hey, here's what I want to do. Hmm. I want to pass a law, a second chances law. Hmm. And, and that's how it all got started. Let's talk about the basics of criminal justice reform. Uh, for people that don't know much about criminal justice, 
in the United States and the state of our prisons and incarceration. What are some of the, the top facts people should know about U.S. and criminal justice? Well, for example, we, uh, the United States represents 5% of the world population, but we have 25% of, the, uh, of prisoners, incarcerated people in the, in the world. So we're you know, disproportionately, uh, or, or we just have way, far too many, even if we cut it by 50%, we'd hmm. still be the most incarcerated country in the, hmm. in the world. So, you know, there's a real issue with the way that we punish criminals. And, you know, that's really what it's about. It's not hmm. about revenge. It's not about anything other than someone does something wrong then they, they should be punished. Mm. Nobody would argue that. I don't argue that. No one else does. But a lot of times, you know, it's, we, we've gotten to the point where we over-punish, we mm. over-criminalize uh, minor offenses. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, that, that's one of the main issues, I think, for us. I don't know much about the history here. Love, if anything, comes to mind for you. I heard this story once that Clinton was... Uh, current governor running for president, um, obviously as a Democrat, and he actually returns to Arkansas to oversee an execution during his campaign. And uh, the person telling the story was highlighting it as an example of this intense phenomena in American politics of being strong on crime. Right. Help me understand that. I mean, uh, even 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 Democrats who you'd think would might be on the side of decriminalization or lesser criminalization. There's such a strong urge for appearing tough on crime. Help me understand that. Uh, I mean, I wish I understood it because I I don't. I think that you know, we went through a period of time, I think in the '60s and '70s, where crime was rising. Uh, you know, there were a lot violent crime was right in New York, Chicago. A lot of the the urban areas were. Uh, you know, the murder rate was increasing, and so there was an, uh, a cry, outcry for, uh, you know, something to be done. Mm. And I think that's how it, what created the problem. Mm. The solution was, well, let's, you know, let's create mandatory minimum sentences. Let's sure. not allow, quote, liberal judges to uh, take it easy on violent felons. And, uh, you know, we just, uh, it was an overreaction to mm. the problem. And as, for a lot of reasons, crime rates started coming down. Mm. Uh, and as they did, you started to see people being incarcerated. You know, you had mandatory minimum sentences, uh, stacked sentences, so that someone with a, a minor, two or three minor drug crimes could end up, you know, 52 years like Weldon Angelos in, in uh, Utah. You know, he was convicted for three minor drug sales, but because they were, there was a federal agent involved, and... He theoretically supposedly had a gun on him at the time, although he never showed it, never brandished it, never used it. Uh, the gun, the fact that the gun was involved and there were three crimes, he got 52 years mandatory minimum. Hmm. The judge cr literally cried at his sentencing and said, there's nothing I can do. You don't hmm. deserve this. But this is, these are the guidelines that Congress has given me, and I can't go around them. And uh, eventually the prosecutor actually stepped in after he'd served, I think, 12 years, 10 or 12 years, stepped in and, and I'm not sure the process they went through but he was able to have his get his sentence reduced and, and get him out of prison mm. but mm. It, it's a uh, 
to, to this day, obviously, that's still, you have the Tom Cottons of the world who are out there saying that, you know, we have, if anything, at the federal level, an under-incarceration problem. And there's just a fundamental uh, lack of, of knowledge and lack of, of understanding of what the criminal justice system is supposed to mm. do and what it's supposed to mm. accomplish. 95% of people in prison are going to come out and be our neighbors. Mm. What kind of neighbors do we want them to be? Mm. Do we want them to be hardened criminals who are gonna, going to c commit more crimes because that's the only way they can make a living? Mm. They don't know any better? Or do we want to train them and teach them new skills in, while they're in prison? You know, someone's good at selling drugs then they're probably going to be good at selling out some other item mm. that's legal you just got to you know teach them and show them the way and and uh why more people don't understand that i have no idea you mentioned earlier the massively disproportionate um, percentage of americans that are in prison and intuitively that feels like gosh we should be more aligned in line with other countries Beyond just the fact that a lot of people are in prison, why is that so bad for the country to have so many people in prison? Well, there are a lot of reasons. You know, one is, as I mentioned before, 95% of those in prison are going to come out and be our neighbors. So, you know, you might take a, someone who's been convicted of a f very minor crime, but there's a mandatory minimum sentence, which, by the way, we don't have mandatory minimum sentences in Texas except on, you know, a very few crimes against, sex crimes against children. Um, you know, we leave it to the judges mm -hmm. to, uh, to, to, to punish, sure. not, not the legislature. And um, it's worked really well. But 95% of them are going to come out and be our neighbors, as I said earlier. So um, I, I think that it's important that th there's a cost there. You, you have, it costs money. It costs, you know, anywhere from 20 to $50 a day to house a prisoner. And you add that up and multiply times the, the number of prisoners in any given state. Mm. And it's a very, very expensive proposition. Mm. And that you can save money by retraining. You know, diversion courts are a great program that we have here in Dallas. And Houston has them now. And you take a first-time drug offender, instead of convicting them of the crime and then maybe, you know, either send them to prison or give them a deferred sentence or probation, don't even, don't convict them. Don't put them through trial. Divert them to a a a, a, a program mm -hmm. to re rehabilitate them hmm. and get them through any drug addiction or drug problems they may have. And you know, does it work every time? No, of course not. But it does work a lot of the time. And and you take someone who would have been convicted and turn them and fix their problem. And and you know, th there's. They don't come back. They don't show back up in the court system. So, plus, it's just the right thing to do. I mean, we're we're a country based on uh, you know Judeo-Christian laws and beliefs system that you know forgiveness is the the best way to lead your life mm. to be you know forgiving person. Mm. And so, there's a lot of reasons why I think it fits criminal justice reform and and that what we're trying to accomplish fits into. Uh, the United States and, and the states themselves. Yeah, I was in doing some research. I read that 40% of low-income men who father a child out of wedlock have already been in jail by the time their first son or daughter is born. How do you think about 
uh, our incarceration situation is impacts poor families? Well, I think, you know, this all goes back to not trying to point fingers, but, you know, uh, the 53-year-old uh, war on poverty hmm. has been abject, total failure, hmm. you know, other than some running water and electricity in some of the rural areas of the Appalachian Mountains. You know, we've totally devastated the inner city poor. Um, you know, 53 years ago, the uh, African-American communities, now, true, there was segregation. So I'm not trying to justify that and say, let's go back to mm. segregation at all. I, that, uh, it's just the point is, 53 years ago, African-American families and white families in the inner city had, you know, I think that the out of wedlock birth rate was somewhere plus or minus 20%. Mm -hmm. um, now it's over 70% for African-Americans. Mm. And, you know, they're, they're, we've devastated their lives mm. with this dependency. We've, we've created these dependent people who, who look to government for everything. And, you know, they're not going to go get a job because if they go get a job, they're going to take a pay cut. And, you know, the, which means there, there are some really simple solutions to mm. a lot of these issues. Mm. I think, for example, don't completely cut their welfare off or their subsidies, but, you know, lower them. Mm. Maybe cut them in 50% so they go get a job and they get a raise, not a... Right. Not a... Everybody wants to be, uh, you know, a, a, an independent, self-reliant person. Mm. No one wants to sit in the ditch, and that's what that's the problem with this war on poverty is, mm. is, you know, we, we pay people to lay in the ditch mm. instead mm. of encouraging them to get up and, and go to work and, and fend for themselves mm. and their families. I know a point Charles Murray makes is that um, if you control for marriage rates, you actually close the income gap. There is no income gap between white families and African-American families. And I wonder how this 40%, if 40% of the men in these neighborhoods that have a child are going to jail, it's got to be a big impact on can they get married? Can they have a family? It's got to be really devastating. Do you do you see that play out? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's a it's a never ending spiral. So they, you know, they've fathered one or two children by one or different two or more mothers, and they um, they end up in jail. They have child support. Now they can't pay their child support because mm. they're not making money. They're sure. in jail. So they come out of jail, and they owe fees, fines. And a ton of child support, plus yeah. maybe restitution to the the victim of their crime. Mm. And when they don't pay that, guess what? They get rearrested and put back in mm. jail because they didn't they didn't, didn't make good on their obliga mm. monetary obligations. Um, you know, we passed a law um, this past session, and and the beauty of Texas is that we our legislature meets every two years for four and a half months, so it's a part time job. Mm. And so they're not uh, down in Austin trying to make laws all the time, which is great because they legisl you know politicians love to make laws. So uh, now I forget the point of the story. Sorry about that. It was a good story nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so you have this moment with Charles. You're feeling like you're getting activated. Um, how did you decide how to be a force on behalf of criminal justice reform? Lots of different options. You could support candidates. You could write a book. You could write articles. You could become an elected official yourself. How did you figure out your own kind of plan of influence? 
Well, well, certainly, you know, I've never even considered and would never consider becoming an elected official. I have no desire <laughs> whatsoever. And I, and I admire people that do, um, but, but I, I have no desire and would never, never in a million years, you couldn't pay me enough money to become an elected official. I mean, there's just, you're just set up for abuse. Um, you know, it's just something that I happen to be passionate about, and I saw a need here in Texas. I think we'd made progress. There were people, you know, we're close with Governor Perry. Governor Perry is a very big criminal justice reform mm -hmm. advocate and was instrumental in, you know, getting things started in 2005 in Texas, taking us from, you know, the lock them up, throw away the key state to the criminal justice reform leader. And with a lot of help, it wasn't just him. I mean, there were Jerry Madden, who was a, 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 a state rep at the time, kind of led the effort along with uh, Judge uh, John Cruzo here in Dallas, mm. who came up with a, uh, I'm not saying he invented this, but he, he created a, a diversion court system in Dallas that mm. was really successful. Mm. And, and uh, so, you know, people kind of teamed up to, to get it started and, and push it along, and we've closed uh, eight prisons in Texas and seven uh, juvenile detention centers mm. and literally saved billions of dollars and are on track to save another, you know, seven or eight billion over the next 10 years. Mm. So it's not inconsequential sure. at all. Uh, I think that it was just something that, that I had a personal experience. And I think that's what, what I've seen as I've built relationships around the country with other criminal justice reform advocates. And I've uh, you know, spoken on panels in D.C. And, and, you know, around the country and, you know, met with a lot of different governors around the country on criminal justice reform. What I find is that a lot of the activists have, have had a brush with the criminal justice system hmm. in some way, shape, or form. Sure. Maybe it's like Jared Kushner, his father, was, you know, imprisoned uh, for, I think, bank fraud, um, and, you know, it was very devastating to, mm. to, and had a huge impact on, on Jared's life. Mm. And a lot of people have gone to prison, mm. you know, and were maybe wrongfully committed or over uh, prosecuted. And um, a lot of people who are active in it have had that brush. And I had my brush, obviously, when I was 17, and it really affected my life. And so mm. it was, I always wanted to be able to do something about it and finally got to the point where I could. From the facts, it feels like this is a slam dunk case about the need for reform. Um, are there people that oppose the work that you're doing? You know, I, I don't think, <clears throat> I'm going to say that there aren't people who necessarily oppose it. I think there are uh, politicians on the right and, and in kind of the squishy middle. And, you know, both Democrats and Republicans hmm. who look at it and say, well, the, gosh, the system seems to be working. Crime rates are down over the last 20, 30 hmm. years. If it ain't broke, why fix it? Sure. And, you know, you have the, the Tom Cottons, who I'm going to pick on because, you know, I really like Tom. And he's Arkansas, we supported him uh, when he ran for Senate in the first place. Uh, the first time, I mean, and we, uh, uh, you know, teamed up with uh, the Cokes on and they're a uh, super PAC to support him. So we maxed out to him, host, co-host events for him here in Dallas and, and you know, put money in the super PAC and directed it towards, towards him. Um, so I'm real, I was really disappointed when he came out as a vocal opponent uh, to Senate Bill 2123 last uh, legislative cycle. 
in D.C. Uh, it was a Senate bill that, that created to uh, uh, reduce mandatory minimum sentences for nonviolent drug crimes. And it was, uh, you know, Chuck Grassley is the author. Uh, you know, the real uh, creators of this of the bill are uh, Mike Lee, Senator Mike Lee from Utah, and mm -hmm. John Cornyn from Texas. Uh, Dick Durbin has been a supporter, so it, was, it had bipartisan support and um, passed out of committee, Judiciary Committee. Um, but McConnell never put it to the floor hmm. because he didn't want to have the big battle hmm. between Republicans. Hmm. And Jeff Sessions was one of those opposed. So, you know, I frankly was thrilled when he was picked for uh, Attorney General, not as much because I, th although I, I, I like him and I think he's a fine man and is a good Attorney General, at the time I felt like the best thing that could possibly happen was get him out of the Senate so yeah. he can get some things done yeah. there. Is that so? So Tom's a smart guy. Um, is there something else happening there in, uh, in Arkansas or Alabama where, uh, Republican incumbents feel like against their own best judgment, they have to be tough on crime for they'll be, they'll be primaried. Well, I mean, I, I can't say what motivates, what has motivated Jeff Sessions. Um, and he's been, you know, just really, really tough on crime for a long time. Although he has been very open uh, to, you know, reforming the the Bureau of Prisons, and is my understanding, and, mm -hmm. and to uh, our reentry work that we're doing at the White House with uh, Jared Kushner in the Office of American Innovation. But Tom Cotton, you know, I've had multiple conversations, several conversations with him about it, not as many as I would like, but I do have his cell phone, and uh, um, he really has no no. There is no reasoning behind it because I specifically asked him. I said, "You cannot tell me that you're getting a lot of calls from your constituents in Arkansas demanding that you get tougher on crime at the federal level." Right. He said, "No, I'm not. I'm not." I said, "Have you had any calls like that?" "No, I haven't." I said, "Why are you doing this?" "Well, it's just a personal feeling that I have." Huh. Well, the reality is, is I believe that you know he, he I like him, so not to insult him or anything, but he I think he kind of views himself as as the you know, current day Abraham Lincoln, hmm. you know, he's got the, he's, he's smart, he's tall, long neck, big Adam's apple, throw hmm. a beard on him, and, hmm. you know, he, he'd look like him. And I think he's, uh, <laughs> he, he is, has every intention of some point, he fancies himself a contender for the president of the United States. Hmm. And so he, I think he's really used it to draw attention to himself. I'm hoping that this session, when these bills come out, there's a mens rea bill which has been introduced, and, and the same bill, uh, 2123, to reduce mandatory minimum sentences at the federal level, uh, is, has just been reintroduced again. Mm. So they've both got to go back through committee. Uh, the Democrats, of course, are vehemently opposed to mens rea, which is you know criminal intent. What, what is the intent of the perpetrator when the crime's committed? Did they know they were committing a crime? Did they intend to commit a crime? Mm. And it's very hypocritical of Democrats to be against that because Hillary Clinton would be either sitting in a prison cell right now or indicted and going through trial if James Comey, head of the F director of the FBI, had not said that, well, she had, even though it was egregious what she had done and, and blatantly uh, broke the law, mm. she had no criminal intent. Well, I mean, there's not even a criminal, in, there's no part mm. of that statute that, mm. that 
makes that an ex- mens rea an excuse for not being uh, prosecuted. Sure. So it's very, you know, very hypocritical of Democrats, I think, to, to not support mens rea when they're the leader of their party uh, and their presidential candidate mm. in the last election cycle is sitting free at home because of mens rea. Sure. So that, that's a big deal for me. Yeah, interesting. Uh, there's a website, a publication called The Marshall Project. I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with it, but mm-hmm. they did have a interesting multi-part series where they actually asked uh, conservatives to talk about the prospects for criminal justice reform under Trump. And uh, interesting, I was reading some of their content. They described Trump's campaign as a swaggering, tough-on-crime campaign. Thinking back through the campaign, what you have such an ear for criminal justice stuff. Uh, is that a fair characterization of the campaign Trump ran? I don't think it is at all. I think that um, you know, we were big uh, Trump supporters. Um, obviously, not until he was the, the nominee, but once Ted Cruz suspended his campaign, I mean, it was a split second later, and we were mm. Trump supporters. Mm. I think three weeks later, he came to Dallas, and uh, we actually had a meeting with him in a conference room in his hotel just down the street here in Preston Center, and um, and we visited with him, and I asked him, you know, the question. I didn't get to quiz him as much as I would have liked to have mm. because we only had so much time. And it was, uh, you know, Dad and I met with him. And I think he had Steve Mnuchin with him and uh, a couple other guys. And, and uh, But it was just, I think just the four or five of us, uh, uh, Dad's wife was in it as well. And we really enjoyed the, the conversation. He was very personable. He was, you know, asked him a question, he'd answer it and succinctly and stop talking. He'd ask a question and sit quietly and listen to the mm. answer. And I asked him, where do you stand on? criminal justice reform. He said, I believe in fair justice. Hmm. He said that to me since. Hmm. I believe in fair justice. I think if someone commits a crime, they should be punished. And then, but they shouldn't be set up to fail. They should be, you know, allowed to reenter society and be successful and be, uh, uh, you know, take, put in a position to be able to take care of themselves, their families and all that. So he believes in fair justice. And I think that's truly where he stands. Hmm. I think the the proof that you know we're now ad, advising uh, Jared Kushner and his his office and team on criminal justice reform is proof that he uh, he supports criminal justice reform. Right, right. What's the state of the coalition of advocates for criminal justice right now? A lot of people talk about the strange bedfellows of the sort of social justice left with the Koch brothers, with Republicans. Uh, what's the state of that coalition today? Uh, I mean, it couldn't be stronger. It was, I'll give a great example. Van Jones, you know, who's a commentator, CNN commentator, and a political activist, and, and, and a, a guy I really like and admire. And he likes and admires me. And, and why? Because we're both strongly believe in criminal justice reform. He has a, a, a program called Cut 50, so it's mm. hashtag Cut 50. And, you know, their goal is to cut the, the uh, population, the, the uh, incarceration population uh, by 50% uh, over the next 10 years. And one of our kind of kickoff programs at, at the Decent Center for Criminal Justice Reform was uh, a program called Unlikely Allies. Mm. And Van came down. And uh, he and I gave a presentation, 
to about, you know, I think 150 people or so showed up. And um, a lot of attorneys, a lot hmm. of alumni from the, the law school hmm. there at SMU. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it was, just, it was just fun. It was really interesting. And, you know, two guys that, you know, he and I don't agree on anything other than that. I mean, we care about people. He cares about people. I care about people. And, again, we have different ways of getting, I think, to the, the same result. But not in criminal justice reform. Mm. We're 100% in sync. And I, mm. I'll never forget, I was speaking on a panel in the summer of 2015 with uh, Mark Holden, the general counsel at uh, Coke Industries, who's a strong, strong criminal justice reform advocate, and uh, uh, Ann Milgram, who's the ex-attorney general from New Jersey, who at the time was one of the leaders in, in the Arnold Foundation out of Houston in their criminal justice reform efforts. And then, and I forget his name, but he's one of the co-owners of the Boston Red Sox, who's big on, and has been for 20 years, hmm. over 20 years, on uh, uh, ending bullying and, and rape in prisons. And so the four of us are on this panel at the, at the Fair Justice Summit to talk about, uh, you know, private activism hmm. in, in criminal justice reform. And out walks the moderator, and it's Van Jones. <laughs> and so, I mean, the, you could hear the gas in the crowd, and I'm, uh, I'm one of them. I'm like, uh -huh. oh, because uh -oh. he'd been one of the biggest uh, uh, protesters, led protesting groups outside of Coke seminars for on several different hmm. occasions. And, um, and he walks out, and Mark gets up, and I can't decide, tell if they're going to just start bashing each other or what. And they hug. They huh. embrace. And the, the whole, yeah, everybody's just stunned and shocked. Hmm. And Van walks to the podium and he said, I bet that surprised some people. And he said, I'll, then he proceeded to talk about Mark and how much he loved Mark Holden. Sure. And why did they, yeah, they didn't agree on anything except one thing, criminal justice reform. And they are both strong advocates for CJR and, uh, and, and have a, a lot, you know, the same goals and, and, work together closely mm. together on it and it's just it's a lot of fun ace the aclu and coke industries the charles coke mm. foundation and charles coke institute work together mm. um there's just a lot of the groups on the left and the right that work together at the yeah. state and federal level i uh have enjoyed the work potentially surprisingly of brene brown have you read anything from brene brown mm -mm. uh she is the uh, best-selling author you've never heard of it's mostly I think middle-aged women that read most of her books, but she's this amazing author. And uh, in her latest book, she has this concept where she says, it's hard to hate people up close. So move in. And I wonder in your relationship with Van Jones or others, are there people that you kind of disagree with on everything you connect on this particular policy question? Do you ever talk about things other than criminal justice? Do they kind of, try to persuade you do you try to persuade them on on non-criminal justice issues that's a good question and i'm trying to think of an instance where they have i mean van and i don't when we're together we don't talk about much other than i mean just you know what we've been up to what's yeah. been going on i like to kid them that that you know where'd you come up with a cut 50 why don't you make it cut 75 you know <laughs> let's what's wrong with cutting the population by 75 percent of prisoners in, in the u.s but um, we don't really talk about politics or, or other things. And, you know, obviously he's not a Trump fan. I am. So mm -hmm. uh, we don't talk about Trump. Yeah. Um, the, the director of our executive director of our center at SMU, uh, Pam Metzger, is and, and then the dean of the college is, is uh, 
uh, Jennifer Collins, and Jennifer is a graduate of Harvard Law School. She graduated the year before um, Obama, and her husband graduated with Obama. Mm -hmm. And they're both, well, she's a Democrat, he's a Libertarian, and, um, you know, we talk about, she's, she's my closest friend who's a Democrat friend, and she, we have, we go to dinner regularly, go to lunch, visit regularly, and we cover all topics. They, neither one of them are Trump fans. Hmm. And uh, she's helped influence the way I look at things hmm. sometimes. Yeah. You know, for example, uh, gay marriage. Um, yeah, I've had, I just, I just don't even understand the issue. I don't see, t to me, the Constitution uh, that's already covered hmm. in the Constitution simply yep. by not being in the Constitution. Right. It's, it's, should be, I should be able to marry whoever I want to, man, woman, my car, my dog, whatever. I mean, other than, you know, a child and, and having, you know, that's, that certainly should be, the government should step in and prevent, obviously, you know, molesting a child. But other than that, why is the government's role to regulate who gets married? Mm. So uh, it doesn't bother me. It's never bothered me. But I believed, she and I had the discussion at dinner one night, and, and you know, the Supreme Court had ruled and made it mm. unconstitutional for any state to discriminate against uh, a gay couple getting married. And I, you know, I said that at the time, I told her that I, I liked uh, Governor Perry was all for just leaving it at the states. Mm. State level, let states decide. And, and she brought up the fact that she didn't get an argument. We didn't argue mm. or even debate. She just brought up the fact that Although she she thinks there are a lot of things that should be at the state level, she didn't believe that's one of them because, you know, for example, interracial marriage. And I'm not an attorney, so I can't tell you the ruling or when it was, but, you know. Uh, Loving versus Virginia, I think you. was the Thank you. interracial case. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so she said, you know, what if that case had not gone to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court had not ruled that it was illegal to discriminate against uh, interracial, mm. you know, couples who, interracial yeah. couples. Mississippi for example, might still make it against the law for two different races to get married. Sure. Well, how absurd does that look to us today? Hmm. Uh, big, yeah. right? So yeah. she, I, I texted her later, and I said, you know, I've been thinking about that, and, I, and you're right. Hmm. It, it did need to go hmm. to the Supreme Court, hmm. and it was good to get it behind us and get it over with, yeah. just like it was then with interracial marriage. You know, it's not uh, – it's just something the government – sometimes has to get involved and stop, you know, things like that. So so she persuaded you on the marriage question. Right. Outside of criminal justice, do you have any other topics that you like to persuade Democrats on? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not one to uh, try to force my opinion on someone else. Um, but through your, your winsome charm and reason. <laughs> uh yeah, there, there's really not. I mean, I, I don't, I think, I respect everyone's opinion. Obviously, I have a strong belief in freedom of speech. And I think that a lot of times I'm forced to sit and listen to things that I don't like or I don't agree with. But you know what? That's their right. Mm. And I think that uh, uh, we're seeing this lockup on college campuses and, you know, around the country where the left doesn't like what they hear and mm. if they don't agree with it then they don't want to hear it they want to shut you down yeah and i don't i don't understand that because it seems 
like it is it's counter to everything that that the left stands for and mm. is, has pr pushed for and preached for all all these mm. decades so uh, that that's something that, I, that I'm fairly vocal about with Democrat friends but frankly most of all I don't know a Democrat who doesn't agree with that yeah uh, maybe to wrap up, uh, we've had a few mentions along the way of Charles Koch and the Koch Network, and it's so surprising to me how uh, controversial and in some circles um, hated um, the, the Koch brothers can be. Um, I read a quote, I think, from you that you said uh, you often get accused of drinking the Charles Koch Kool-Aid. As a matter of fact, you have it for breakfast instead of orange juice. You drink it at lunch instead of tea, and you even have it with vodka at night. Um, clearly, you have drunk the Kool-Aid, potentially, literally, uh, but metaphorically. But right. to those who have so much hatred or frustration uh, with with that network, what do you say to them? What could they read or learn or experience that would help them understand where you guys are all coming from? I think if they got in and you know watch the uh, the debate last night, which is really interesting between uh, uh, Bernie Sanders and, and Ted Cruz. And you know, I think I thought they both did a good job. Obviously, I thought Ted won, but you know, some, I'm sure someone on the left would argue that uh, Bernie won. But Bernie kept throwing out Charles Koch and the Koch brothers, and as if they're like just like Harry Reid used to do. Mm. And it's they're convenient, you know, bad guys, mm. villains to to right. to throw out. The, the the reality is, yeah, yes, they're one. You know, they're top five richest people in the country. Or top ten certainly, but they're uh, uh, you know the last thing they're worried about is increasing their wealth. The last mm -hmm. thing they're worried about are is changing the tax system to benefit them. You know they've long since f covered the issue of passing on their estates to their heirs. Most wealthy people have so to to accuse them of trying to change the tax system to benefit themselves. It's just, it's so far off mm. base. It, it's crazy. Mm. And I don't even understand how people, if people would take the time to read what mm. Charles Koch writes and what he says, um, you know, he is truly out to empower the poor, to lift them out of poverty, not pay them to lay in the ditch like mm. the Democrats have done for 53 years. Mm. And it's a total, absolute failed system. And government's going to take too long to fix it. Mm. So we're trying to fix it through private entities, and that's what it's all about. Mm. You know, we go out and raise hundreds of millions of dollars, yes. A lot of that is put in by Charles and David Koch, and you know, very little of that is actually spent on supporting campaigns mm. and trying to influence politicians. It's truly spent on programs, you know, inner city programs who stand together, one of their groups, affiliates you know and, and we we give them stand together a lot of money and, and help support programs in dallas and and that's what they're about i think if people would take the time and get in and get close mm. and understand what they're about they're not nearly as bad they're not bad at all they're great mm. people yeah you know and, and like i think george soros is just despicable but you know maybe if i got in and understood what motivated him maybe i would changed my mind mm. i mean he, he's he's harder to follow because he's not right. nearly as vocal and a prolific a writer 
as uh, Charles is. Okay, Evan, that was a really important conversation that you had with Doug. So this debate, especially inside right of center circles, continues to really interest me. And I think you hit on a lot of this with Doug. Um, we talked a little bit about this in the beginning of our of our interview as well. But you know, we're coming out of this period of time um, when the war of war on drugs was was an incredibly important uh, part of the kind of political narrative, any candidate in either party had to run on that platform. Um, but the tides are, are certainly starting to shift. Um, and we, we've made a lot of sort of progress even in the last 10 to 15 years. But we now are at a moment where Trump came in with this whole new populist message, and he campaigned very strongly on the idea of law and order. I mean, if you go back and listen to his inaugural address, I mean, it was doom and gloom, and the um, solution was very strong law and order. Now, part of that is, I think, associated to, the, to immigration reform, um, but but there's also something to that. We also now have an attorney general in Jeff Sessions who's also really bullish on um, being tough on crime. You know, he's come out about uh, mandatory sentencing and, and being in support of that. So I, I'm just, I'm trying to figure out where we are now. We've sort of kind of the, the tides were shifting, we were we were moving into softening support for criminal justice reform, and now we're now we're sort of halting some of that progress. Where do where where are we on that? Well, Doug is a confidant and advisor to Jared Kushner and has been really leading the charge with this administration and trying to keep the momentum moving for criminal justice. But as you note, uh, certainly our Attorney General Sessions has uh, at least through rhetoric had some more indication that he's a bit more in the tough on crime camp. So it's really in the balance right now to see where Trump comes down. He's clearly been frustrated with the bloatedness and the lack of efficiency in the criminal justice system. So we're likely to see some reforms there. Whether or not the tough on crime, mandatory minimum sentencing stuff stays, it's unclear. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting that we have leaders like Americans for Prosperity, which, you know, as we know, are are connected to the Koch network. And they have, I mean, they have a major grassroots apparatus and criminal justice reform is quickly being becoming kind of a key pillar that they're pushing forward on. So given kind of the amount of money and the amount of influence that they have over policy, um, and, you know, they've, they kind of had stayed out of the, the 2016 presidential race. Um, they're certainly going to be throwing a lot of money into the 2018 uh, midterm races, but it'll be interesting from sort of an issue advocacy pr- perspective, um, how and if and when they really mobilize the grassroots network on this issue. You know, the other thing that your interview with Doug has really uh, brings up is this idea that mandatory sentencing and overcriminalization is really contributing to the destruction of our communities, right? So we're at this moment in time where um, kind of the local mediating institutions and the sort of um, are, are weakening the social capital that people traditionally have had that help, that binds communities together is, is really weakening. And a big component of that is at the family level. And we're seeing that in a lot of the communities that are especially affected by overcriminalization, that there's a super high number of out of wedlock births. You know, a lot of kids are growing up without fathers. And so I, I think it, it further demonstrates to to me that we really have a commitment um, to to 
work on this issue, if only to strengthen what's happening at the local level. You know, Doug, Doug mentioned something that I thought was really interesting. And it's, it's this, that a lot of men who come out of prison, they're going to end up being our neighbors and we need to support them and rehabilitate them in ways that um, will help them to reintegrate into those our communities and to be contributing members of society when when they are out of being incarcerated. We have seen grassroots interest in organizations like uh, Chuck Colson's Prison Fellowship and a variety of programs like the Prisoner Reentry Program, which is asking questions about how are we caring for our people who are in prisons? And then more importantly, even from a selfish perspective, how are we preparing people for successful reentry into uh, our communities and literally as our neighbors? Yeah. And it also raises something that Doug mentioned, um, which is the fact that you know our country was founded on the basis of Judeo-Christian values. And one of those key values is this premise of forgiveness. And some of these rehabilitation programs uh, that, that folks in the criminal justice reform movement are pushing on is, is kind of this rehabilitation and compassion, com- sort of compassionate rehabilitation sort of effort. Um, you would think that based on that, that there would be a lot more support in, right of, in the right of center sort of world. Why do you think that that's not winning over some people on the right? Well, we've seen two strains in the American Christian rhetoric on this. Um, I think on the one hand, you have this uh, tough on crime language, which uh, we definitely saw revisited with Trump in his inaugural address. He said, quote, the crime and gangs and drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country of so much unrealized potential. Uh, There's this real anger and frustration about criminals on the streets committing crimes against people. And so there's a spirit of, you know, justice is due, law and order is necessary. Meanwhile, uh, traditionally from the uh, sort of Christian left, you have more of a social justice movement about saying equality under the law and caring for people that are in difficult situations. So I think within the American Christian movement, you still have some of those threads in tension. I might highlight the work of the International Justice Mission, however, for I think really educating more traditionally conservative American Christians about how God and how the Bible talks and thinks about justice. So I am personally encouraged by developments of where the American Christian movement is going to think rationally, compassionately, and efficiently about what do we say about justice. Yeah, I agree with all of that. So so Doug um, has also spent, just switching gears a little bit, he spent a lot of time working with people uh, on the left, uh, both professionally and through some of his his political endeavors, I'm really heartened just based on some of his comments during your interview, just at his his openness towards learning uh, from each other. You know, sort of the the strange bedfellows thing. You know, the fact that he um, and and Van Jones who couldn't be more further apart in terms of a lot of their political ideas, but found this issue, the criminal justice reform issue, which is something that Van Jones has, has been very actively engaged on, but they found this issue and they were able to connect and connect not just as sort of political adversaries, but really found a way to work together. And I guess I just, I wish that there were more people sort of seeking out issues where there is overlap. Um, but but I'm heartened in this instance that, that there are leaders 
leaders on sort of both sides that are that are willing to sort of brush aside party labels and try to work to get things done. You know, it even reminds me of some of the conversations we had recently with Congressman Mike Gallagher around the challenges and the reality that often as someone with passionate views, it's very possible that we literally do not know or certainly don't have conversations with anyone that we actually disagree with. So the example of criminal justice brings together Doug with someone like Van Jones, with whom he honestly has about zero in common. They build some rapport. They build a little bit of trust. And I think that opens them up to conversations about topics beyond criminal justice. Well, this conversation certainly is is just at the very beginning. Uh, we'll see how I have to sort of watch how this new administration handles it over the the coming months. Um, but but Evan, before we go, you mentioned something about an ambassador position, something that that Doug told you after we stopped recording. Can you tell our listeners what that was? It always happens that as soon as you hit stop on the recorder, the best stuff comes out. But Doug mentions that obviously he's a big donor to the uh, administration, and all this is public record. And so anyway, he gets a call from the White House and they say, Doug, we want you to come up to Washington uh, because we have something for you. So he gets up there and he's in this conversation and they basically say, we would like to offer you this position of ambassador to Austria. And he's sitting there and he's thinking and the only line he could come up with was he says, well, I've never been there and I hate the sound of music. Thanks, but no thanks. And so what I like about Doug is he's just truly a person of principle. He's not in the game of politics to get a fancy luxury ambassador position to a a swanky chalet in Austria. He's really in it on behalf of the ideas that he is so passionate about. So Doug is a colorful person with lots of big ideas and excited to see his continued work on these important issues. Just another reason that we love talking with Doug. All right. Well, that is all the time that we have for today. Evan, thank you so much for your time and just for the the time you spent interviewing Doug. And that wraps this episode of Our American Experiment. Until next time. This has been Our American Experiment, a podcast about the longest-running experiment to promote human flourishing the world has ever seen.